We also want to watch, uh, welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, this is a live service. We believe that you are a part of what we are doing. It is literally a campus for us. And um, so we pray that God would bless you as well. The title of our message today is Four Teachings of Jesus That Every Christian Should Know, which is kind of an interesting title because which one of the teachings of Jesus should you not know, right? So it fits no matter what teaching you're covering. Four teachings of Jesus that everyone should know. And we come into a section in chapter 12 where we get the teachings of Jesus and he goes over a lot of different topics. It is a, a compilation of his teachings, like you have a compilation of them in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus was an itinerant preacher, which means that he traveled and taught. And itinerant preachers often give the same thing. They'll teach the same. And we see that when we study the, the Gospels, that Jesus was in different places. He gave the same parables sometimes in different places. Sometimes he used them to speak of a different truth. He would use the same parable, but he would bring up a different truth about it. And I got thinking about the, the, the teaching ministry of Jesus. And first of all, you know this, there are good preachers and there are bad preachers. There are good teachers and there are bad teachers. There, there are ones that can keep your attention and it's at least survivable. And there are others that are so bad you're like, please just shut up. And I hope I'm in the first category and not the second category. Although I can tell you there have been messages that I've given while I'm giving them thinking, this is really bad. This is not good. I can also tell you something Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel in the, in the late 60s, used to say to us pastors. He would say that preaching is like drilling for oil. Once you've been boring for 20 minutes, just get out. Just quit. <laughs> And I can tell you, I've actually done that. I've been like at a passage and I'm like, this is, I'm not connecting at all. And it's my fault, not your fault. And I'm like, all right, let's wrap it up. And you guys are like, we're done? Yep, we're done. I'm, I'm out. So I thought it would be good for us to consider the teaching ministry of Jesus first. Then we'll get into our text. And I got to do this quickly. I always take too long on these little things that I come up with beforehand. But it would be good for us to think about it because... He obviously would teach different if he was here today than I will. Because I bring you the authority of the scriptures and I'm going to say the Bible says this. This is the truth. We stand by this. It works in our lives and, and it has power to work in us and change us. But Jesus was the word of God bringing the word of God. And Jesus often added to scripture. He would bring up scripture and then he would add to it. When I add to scripture, I say things like, but that's my opinion. I might add to it, but I'll tell you, this is my opinion and not the word of God. Jesus was speaking the word of God. No wonder they said about him, he teaches unlike anyone else with authority. For that reason, I mean, wouldn't it be just great that we can read the teachings of Jesus, but to hear them would have been absolutely incredible. So I've got seven thoughts. And I'll go through these quickly, but I just have seven thoughts that I think of when I think of the teaching ministry of Jesus. Number one, he cleared up misconceptions. He would often say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And I think pastors, teachers, the rabbis in their day, the Pharisees, those who taught in their day, taught things wrong. They taught things that were in the Bible wrong. And today I think there's some things we teach wrong. And I think that if Jesus were here with us today, he would say, you've heard it said, maybe look at me, <laughs> but I tell you, and then he would bring a correction. So Jesus is good at correcting what we might think about certain passages. Uh, number two, 
Jesus often challenged readiness. He would say, be ready. At one point he said, be ready because you don't know when the Son of Man is going to return. We are to live our lives in a state of readiness. It's not only that Jesus could return at any moment, and I believe that we are accelerating the days of the return of Christ. I think that COVID-19 kicked things into another gear. And, and I, I think that when we look at the world stage, when we look at what's happening as far as persecution around the world and the establishment of a one world government, there's things happening. We need to do a prophecy update pretty soon because there's things happening at this incredible rate of speed we, sh we should talk about and really point to where the scriptures talk about us marching towards those last days. So we should be ready. But also we live in among a pandemic. And I think probably all of us know somebody who maybe even now has COVID-19 or has had it. Maybe somebody is doing really poorly or someone who's died from it. Maybe before this whole thing is done, we'll all know someone who's died from it. So living during a pandemic, a readiness is a good thing because not only may Jesus come to get you, but you may go to him. And I think of Jesus teaching to the crowds. Maybe he stressed this readiness in his teachings because he knew some of them were not going to be there for long. Well, I don't know that. On New Year's Eve, when we do New Year's Eve messages, I will often say, some of you aren't going to be here with us next year. And when you're looking at a large number, you can say something like that. But he knew it. And so he sensed readiness, or he challenged readiness. The third thing is that he gave clarity to Scripture. Uh, he would say, you, you know, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. But he would also clarify other passages that really help us in our study of the Old Testament. When we're doing the Old Testament studies, we can say Jesus spoke of this and he often quoted Isaiah. He often quoted Psalms. There's so many things that he clarified. He also encouraged purity, which is really important for us, I think, because in our day, it seems that churches are moving away from the encouragement of purity. Remember that Jesus said the Lord's Prayer. And I heard a pastor say here recently that he was challenged as a young man to pray the Lord's Prayer every day and just see what would happen in his life. But he said, not like just words that you say over and over again, but to really meaningfully pray it every day. Take you, it would take you literally less than a minute to pray it meaningfully, thinking about what you're praying and that it was really effective for him. And I thought, what a good challenge and what a good thing. But I think of two things that are said in the Lord's Prayer when it comes to temptation. He said, deliver us from the evil one and do not lead us into temptation. That would be a good thing for us to pray every day. We might change our attitude and heart towards sinful behavior. We might see it more as it is. And we might have a desire for purity in a greater way that goes so against our culture. But Jesus in his teachings regularly encouraged purity. He encouraged sincerity. This is he would often call out hypocrites and wanted us to be real. He doesn't want us to put on an act about how spiritual we are. I'm the most spiritual person here in Calvary, Tucson. Look at all these people, nowhere near as spiritual as me. Uh, he rebuked wrong thoughts. Remember, he said, again, in his correction, he said, if you're, you, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart or you've murdered him already. There's a lot of carnage on the streets of Tucson. A lot of murder taking place out there while people are driving around because they're angry. He said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery with her. So our thought lives cannot be disconnected from our actions. That's who we are internally. 
And the third, the, the seventh thing, the third, I've gone through six of them. The seventh thing is that Jesus used a shock method. He would say things just to shock people. And I have not ever incorporated that really well. I've tried it before, but I get such weird looks that I go, okay, let me explain what I mean. So Jesus would just say something and then leave it alone for you to figure out. Like the greatest example of this is uh, if uh, your, your right hand offends you, then cut it off. It's better for you to go into to heaven without a right hand than to burn for all of eternity in hell. And when I teach that, I, the first, and he also said, gouge out your right eye. If your right eye offends you, gouge it out. And when I teach that, I'm afraid someone's going to go do it. So I'm like, he didn't mean that. All right, guys, just, I want you to know he was telling us to be radical in our attack against sin. Cut things off in your life. If you need to cut things off, if there's things you need to not do because it leads you into sin, then don't do it. Be radical in your attack against sin. But, we, but I, we're always like, and there have been people who have cut off their hand before because Jesus said that. And I'm always like, I want to cover it up. Another thing that Jesus said that was shocking was, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he didn't give more explanation. And the crowds went, okay, this is a hard saying. I'm out of here. And the crowds left because they couldn't figure it out. Uh, another thing that he said, which was shocking, was if you want to be my disciple, hate your father, your mother, your wife, and your children. And we go, that's Jesus. You're not being very Jesus-like telling us to hate people. But we know that what he was saying, see, and I give the explanation, right? But this is what he wanted us to think about. Because we know we're supposed to love our wives, right? The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. So Jesus died for us. And husbands, you're supposed to die for your wives. And you say, well, well, can't you talk about my wife as well? What's she supposed to do? No, you're supposed to die for her, right? Um, so we know we're supposed to love her. But Jesus meant the love for Jesus and God is to be so intense and so powerful that every other love is like hatred compared to it. We could spend a whole message talking about this, and we should, talking about what the real relationship with Jesus should be and how in love with him you should be. He told the church at Ephesus, you don't love me anymore, and I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm not going to be in your presence anymore because you don't love me. So you use shock method. So those are the, my, my thoughts. I'm sure it's not comprehensive, but it's just my thoughts as I think about the teachings of Jesus. So let's get into them. And um, as I said, I kind of cut off a little bit of a big hunk here to cover of Scripture. So I'm going to go kind of quickly through it. There's a lot of different topics. And I realize that when there are a lot of different topics, all you've got to do is daydream for a few minutes. And then you go, what's he talking about? Right? If you're covering a long topic and you're really diving in, then when you check back in, you know where we still are. So you're going to probably have to work a little bit more today. Or if you get confused, then just hang on. We'll get to another topic in a few moments. All right. Um, so in verse one of chapter 12, it says, in the meantime, Jesus had been over to Pharisee's house. He had not washed his hands. He gave the Pharisees three woes. Woe unto you, Pharisees. And then the lawyer said, what about us? And Jesus said, woe unto you, lawyers. So we have the three woes to the Pharisees, three woes to the lawyers. And now we go on to the next chapter. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, large group of people, 
but he carves out his disciples and says, I want to speak to you. And, and being a disciple means you follow him, you lay everything down and you live your life for him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me to be his disciple. I do believe, and I may change this in the future, but I do believe you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I have a couple reasons for thinking that because in Corinthians, it says that some are gonna be saved just through fire. They're gonna receive any rewards. They live their lives kind of for themselves here, but they did have, were saved. I don't suggest trying to live that close to the edge because you don't want to be the guy that just barely wasn't saved by just through fire, right? So, and, and Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I wish I could talk to you as spiritual, but I can't, you are carnal. So we know the majority of the Christians in Corinth were carnal. And then it says that they came behind in none of the spiritual gifts. So they were genuinely saved because God gave them spiritual gifts and they used them in a carnal way because they were carnal. And so we want to make sure we're disciples and these words are for disciples. So was the Sermon on the Mount. So was the Sermon on the Plain for those who are saying, I give up my life and I want to live for Jesus. That's who these are for, okay? So it says, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And leaven Jesus used not only here, but in other places as a type of sin because of the quality of leaven that it permeates. Years ago, I went to San Francisco. It's been like, I don't know, 30 years ago now. We ate at a place down at the wharf where uh, they had had the same yeast for like 120 years. They just tear it off every day and, and put it in the new lump and it goes through the new lump and they tear that off at the end of the day and do it. So it permeates. That's what sin does. That's why the Bible uses, when, it, when you talk about, well, that's why Bible uses yeast to talk about sin because it permeates. We think, I got it. I, I can have the sin in my life and it's okay. It will permeate your life. And, and so you can't really do that. You've got to deal with it. And God is so faithful and forgiving. But he says, which is hypocrisy? The yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Pretending, the word hypocrisy comes from actor, pretending you're someone you're not. There's two ways to get rid of hypocrisy. Number one would be, we talked about this last week, to remove the beam from your eye so you can see clearly to remove someone else's speck. Look at your life and say, this doesn't fit with who I am as a Christian. I need to get this beam out of my eye. That's one way. The second way is just to be honest and real. And probably a combination of both of those is the best. Just to be who you are. Don't see yourself as superior than anybody, but just be real. Be honest about your own struggles. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that every one of us like sheep have gone astray. And, and, and I hear it sometimes. And I don't think people hear it when they say it. But sometimes someone will come up to me and go, you know, I really want us to work on, on, a, on a, a bigger prayer, prayer meeting because people aren't praying like I pray. And I'm like, well, hello, Pharisee. <laughs> I hear it when people talk about witnessing. You know, I'm really good at witnessing. I do a lot of it. And I'm just wondering why more people at Calvary don't witness. It's like, yeah. Jesus kept his hardest, harshest words. Sometimes if we could record things and play them back for people, they might go, I didn't really mean that. That's not what I meant to say. Prayer is good and maybe we need to pray more. Witnessing is good, maybe we need to witness more. But if you think you're superior because you do more than anyone else, well, then you've got the, 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 the leaven of hypocrisy. And then he says this, and this is scary. For there is nothing covered that will be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be unknown. Therefore, whatever is spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So your hypocrisy will eventually be revealed. 
I had a pastor's wife years ago. He's a pastor somewhere else now. But he used to, she used to say, I get so scared when you say that. And I was like, me too. Welcome to the club. And if we're all honest, then us too. So the way that we need to do this is to find complete forgiveness for our sins and to fight hypocrisy in our lives. Lord, may you reveal our hypocrisy. May you help us, lead us not into temptation. Help us to find the way of escape that comes with every temptation so that we are not hypocrites. Here recently, there's been two guys. I'm thinking of two in particular. There may be more, probably is more. One of them, a pastor of a larger church and one of them, an apologist. And you guys may know who I'm talking about. One of them was alive and was found to be in an affair and then found out that it was an ongoing affair and probably not just one. The other guy died and went very well respected, by the way, died very well respected. But after his death, all of this information came out that he had another life, that he really wasn't who he said he was. And God's like, I'll, God's not afraid to reveal our hypocrisy if we aren't dealing with it. God's gracious. God's good. God will forgive you. The way you don't have it shouted from a rooftop is to have the sin forgiven because then it's under the blood of the lamb. And he's not going to get up and go, Robert's forgiven of this, but let me tell you what he did. But God's good at revealing. In the late 80s, there were a lot of television evangelists who had sin revealed in their lives. You guys remember that? Remember Jim Baker was one of them, Jim and Tammy Baker? And um, Jimmy Swaggart was another one. And Jimmy Swaggart, one of his messages, called out another televangelist for having an affair. The other televangelist got mad at him, hired a private detective to follow him, and followed him picking up a prostitute. And so it was exposed. You remember Jimmy Swaggart crying? So did you know that Jimmy Swagger thought that he was the fulfillment of the passage that says the gospel will be preached around the world and then the end will come? He used to keep a map up behind him of where Jimmy Swagger ministries were at. And he was like, as soon as we get all over the world, Jesus is coming back again. He believed he was the one to do that. And I heard an interview when he said, I thought that my ministry was so important. God was using me so powerfully that God would not reveal this sin in my life, this hypocrisy. He called it sin, the sin in my life. And God's not afraid to look bad by revealing hypocrisy. And, and that's why we should deal with it because we don't want it shouted from the rooftops. And so then Jesus talks about the proper aspect of, of fear, that you might have misplaced fear. I see a lot of people today who are terrified of dying and we live in, a, as I said, in an environment where we have a lot of people who are dying from COVID-19 and they're afraid of it. But listen to what Jesus said, verse four. And he said to them, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. You may be really afraid of death. Don't be afraid of death. I can honestly say, listen, I don't want to die. Just want to make that clear. If Jesus says it come back pretty soon, I want to live until I'm not really functioning anymore then die right after that. You know, that's, that's Robert Furrow's plan for Robert Furrow's life, okay? I don't know that God's going to do that. But if you're afraid of death, he has something you should be more afraid of. He says, but I show you to whom you should be fearful, to be, uh, that you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. This would speak to all of you who are here who, have not made a genuine commitment to Christ. 
those of you who are young and those of you who are old, do you have your eternity set? And it seems like such a cliche to say from the pulpit, do you know where you're going when you die? I was saved when a youth pastor asked me, are you going to heaven? Yeah, I thought, just because I went to church. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Being a religious doesn't make you a Christian. We all have our little things that we go, I'm okay because of this. The only way you're okay is if you are transformed by the living God. And Jesus said that. You must be born again. You have to be transformed by him and made into a new person. And so Jesus said, this is eternal life that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. You got to know him. And you do that by developing a relationship with him, by receiving him and inviting him in. And at the end of this message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe the Lord would speak to your heart today, especially if you're younger. I shouldn't say especially, but just to emphasize, like you older people, don't worry about it. Uh, if you're younger, you've got your, you know, the life God's given you and you can live it for him by surrendering to him today and saying, I want to live for you. Uh, he goes on to encourage us that we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to live a life full of fear. He says, where you're fearing death, but you should fear where you're going to spend eternity and someone who could throw you in hell, cast you in hell. And then he says in verse six, are not five sparrows sold for a copper coins, for two copper coins? I don't even think sparrows could be bought for two pennies today. Maybe. And not one of them is forgotten by God. So God, the, Jesus said in another place, not one sparrow falls from heaven that God doesn't know about. Then he says, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What is your value to God? It is so great that he came to this earth and suffered the pain and shame of the cross so you could have eternity. Your greatest value is his love for you. So much so, he, he's so big, he measures the universe with the span of his hands, but he can be so involved in our lives that he knows how many hairs are on your head. And he knows the difference between last night and today because some fell out in the middle of the night. We, in the video we watched, it talked about God knowing our tears. He knows all our tears. God, God knows us so much that we don't have to be afraid. You may be really fearful now. It's in, in that knowledge of the love of God that you can put away fear. Okay, he goes into a couple of other things now. He talks about confessing Christ before men. He says in verse 8, As I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So if I'm living my life out loud, if I'm saying I am a Christian, then God's going to confess me in front of the angels. If I'm ashamed of him, if I hide it, Jesus said again in another place, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Do, now, there's a balance between what we talked about last week. We talked about putting on a show with your Christianity. What about the football player who runs into the end zone and kneels down and prays? Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray so everyone can see you. Go, go into a room and pray. What about when you go into a restaurant and you all as a family hold hands and say a prayer and, and everybody can know you're a Christian? Well, the problem with that is the showiness. You're putting on a show. Just do it quietly and seek God. But letting people know that you're a Christian, you're not ashamed of Christ, especially in a day when we are being attacked as Christians. 
There, there's a propaganda against Christians. This may just be starting. It's probably going to get worse. The, a lot of people in the world think that we are horrible, awful people. And I think about the way the, what the Nazis did. How could the Nazis get to the place where they could round up Jewish people, put them in trains, and ship them off to concentration camps where they gassed them? And that was accepted by the German people. Because for years before, they had propaganda against the Jewish people. They cartoonized them. They made fun of them. They dehumanized them. And then it was easier to take their lives. And the same thing will happen, I believe, to us as Christians. I believe that we will be, we're, we're considered to be, you know, the lowest form. And it's happening more and more. And it's not only happening in the United States, it's happening around the world. Everywhere. I think we're, we're rapidly moving towards the last days. And that is part of it. And so there will be that time when standing up for Christ is very important. And if you're in school, college, you have a great, a great opportunity to rejoice in persecution. When your professor asks if anybody there is a Christian so he can mock you and you say yes. By the way, I, I feel like professors that mock, you know, freshman Christians how do I want to say this and be loving at the same time? <laughs> I have a lot of things I could say, but it's your classroom. You stand in front of people all the time. That freshman's scared to death. And so you have an interaction and you, you mock them and put them down. And you, I don't know, you think you're somebody because of that? Pick on somebody your own size, is what I would like to say. I'd like to say some other things, but I won't. <laughs> right? The Bible says if a man doesn't sin with his tongue, you know, that everybody sins with their tongue. I just be quiet at this point. But there is an opportunity for you college students to be able to say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. And, and when they mock you, to, to be able to stand up and say, we don't believe that. Because oftentimes they'll say what we believe and it's not true. The students will come and, and say, my teacher said this. And it's like, no, we don't believe that. And um, in verse 10, he goes on now. He says, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. And this is in connection with chapter 11, where Jesus cast out a demon and the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. They saw a miracle, a man who was mute and, and had been demon possessed and Jesus delivered him. And they're like, I don't believe that. It reminds me of people today who no matter what they see, they will not believe. We have evidence in the Bible of prophecy that foretells the future. It's actually supernatural because it, God said, I tell the future and he's done it in his word. And when I share that with someone who's an atheist, they will say to me, I don't accept that evidence because it's, if that's true, it would be supernatural and I don't believe in the supernatural. So that in itself is circular reasoning. It's begging the question. They deny any, so you're telling me that nothing supernatural could convince you. What if God has chosen to convince you by super, being supernatural? So these Pharisees had a lot of information and I should point out that it doesn't say anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anybody who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It doesn't say that. So sometimes people, for whatever reason, will say something against the Holy Spirit, maybe a temptation or maybe it's just their own mind that got out of control. And then they go, I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it says. It says the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. What's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The job of the Holy Spirit in the life of a non-believer is to draw them to Christ. 
And so he's drawing you, especially if you have a lot of information like these Pharisees did. We see it again in Hebrews chapter 6, where you have all these people that have all this knowledge. They've tasted of heavenly gifts. They have all of these things. But then it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And, and that's the key. If you say, well, I think I've done that. I think I've rejected, 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 and God doesn't want me now. Well, do you want to come to him? Well, yeah. Well, then you didn't do it because it's impossible to renew them to repentance. If you say, well, no, I don't want to come to Jesus. Well, then maybe you did it. Well, I don't like that. Well, then repent. Well, I don't want to. Well, I don't know what to tell you. There is a point where you go too far in rejecting Jesus, where you gain knowledge. You got to have knowledge. Remember, he's going to judge you according to your light. He judges everyone around the earth and he shows everybody in the world, it says in the book of Romans, creation. And he puts inside of their heart evidence that he's there. And then he judges everyone accordingly. Everyone in the world. And we'll talk about that. I really want to do a message on that soon. I hope I find a place I can really just kind of dive in to the concept of those who've never heard and how God is going to deal with them because there's surprisingly a ton of information in the Bible about it. So... Um, the blaspheme of the Spirit is when you have a lot of knowledge and you reject and you reject and reject and you finally cross a line where God's like, now you can't repent. That's why Hebrews, same book, says, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear God speaking to you, don't harden your heart because you don't know if God's going to speak to you again in the future. You don't know if you'll ever be at the place where you want to receive Him again. So then in verse 11, he says, now when they bring you into the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities... Do not worry about what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. So he says, don't be afraid to, uh, to die. Don't be afraid of people who kill the body. And when they bring you before magistrates, then don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't plan it out because the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And I think that's pretty clear. And we see some of it in the Bible. We see Paul in front of Festus, not from Gunsmoke for you older folks, a different Festus. And we see... We see Paul in front of Agrippa and we see the things that he says and it's powerful, the Holy Spirit. But I, I knew a pastor. I had a pastor. He was my pastor and he was the one that married me and my, my late wife, Lisa. And uh, he used to use this for preaching. He would say, the whole, don't, don't prepare your studies, but when you get up, the Holy Spirit is going to give you the, what you're supposed to say. And then he would say, I'm, I'm a good pastor. I'm a good preacher, but I'm not a good teacher. There's a reason he wasn't a good teacher because he didn't plan for it. He got up there and sometimes the Holy Spirit moves. Sometimes you prepare something and then God moves in a special way. And if you've taught, then you know, it just, sometimes it happens where the Spirit really moves and it's really powerful. There's a real connection. And then sometimes you, it don't. And sometimes you're like, this is just work. <laughs> this is just like, I'm not making a good connection. Sometimes... I've given passages, I've given te teachings that I think are so bad. And it's crazy because people come into to me and say, I really enjoyed your teaching. And I was like, I didn't. It was not good. It was not good. And I'm driving home going, I'm going to study this week so much. I'm going to overstudy. I'm going to really pour into it because I don't ever want that to happen again. This is not saying don't study. If you're a pastor, a teacher, and you're going to teach, then God will in anoint your study time as much as he anoints the pulpit. Don't waste people's time. I remember Skip Heitzig, who was my pastor in Calvary at Albuquerque, encouraging me and teaching. He said, don't, un, don't not prepare because you're going to waste all these people's time. You got these people here, they're going to give you a half hour, 45 minutes of their lives. 
And if you haven't prepared, you're just wasting their time. So this cannot be applied that way. Now he gets into this last section where he talks about, did I skip over? You know what I did? I skipped over six and seven, didn't I? Did I? I talked about the sparrows. I'm getting yeses and noes. All right. Let me just go back and read this. Um, yeah, 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 I did. Okay, let's go back to the 13 now. <laughs> All right, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, and I love this, I think it's hilarious. Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Have you guys ever known people that fight over inheritances? Family members who fight over inheritances? And it gets massively out of control? And there's hatred now in the family? And the mom and dad, when they were writing out their will, they were thinking how they're going to be so blessed and we want to be able to bless them. And then when it comes to it, I want that dresser. No, I want the dresser. I want it. I hate you. And whoever, the poor person that's chosen as the, as the executive or the executor of the estate, he ends up really getting hated. And of course, maybe I can just cover that a little bit. Relationships are far more important than stuff and than money. And Endeavor to never let money get in the way of relationships, ever. I've had people that I've lent money to who didn't repay me and I just didn't say anything because I don't want that money to come between us and our relationship. Kind of did anyway because they started avoiding me because they owed me money, but I don't want that to happen. So Jesus says to him, and, and this sounds like Jesus is from the 70s, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus is like, I'm not here to, I didn't come here to judge over your family or to arbitrate. And he said to them, man, uh, or excuse me, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he has. The, for some of us, there are things that give us worth as a person in our own mind. And we think if I have that house, if I have that car, if I got whatever I've got, that makes me somebody. But Jesus just refutes that. Your life doesn't consist of the things you own. You are not what you own. And that's very easy for us to think that. And so he tells us a parable. He says, then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for you, many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Retire early. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And whose will those things be which you have provided? It's like the ultimate tragedy. You spend your whole life saving for retirement. And as soon as you retire, you die and your children get your retirement funds and spend them in a couple of years. They don't have the same respect for your savings that you had for your savings. Then he says in verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So two things that he says here, a man does not consist of the possessions that he, that he has and lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth. Know that when we give to the poor, the Bible says God gives back to us. We lend to God and God repays us. And that is, um, what is that? What verse is that? It's in the Bible. Look it up. 
The second thing that the Bible that Jesus told us is that we should take the mammon, which is the, the God of mammon was the God of stuff and money. We should take our mammon and use it to make friends with the kingdom of God. So we should invest knowing that. And, and if you are rich, then that's okay. The Bible says, if, tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but be willing to share. So he never condemned anybody for being rich. And he told those people who didn't have, be content with what you've got. He, in fact, he says this, in food and clothing, you should be content. And I always think, can't you just add in a house? With food, clothing, and a house, I probably could be content. But food and clothing without a house? But Jesus said, with food and clothing, you should be content. And then he said, and then Paul said this in Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. So when, we're, when we are walking with him godly, and we are content with what God has provided for us, there is great gain that happens with that. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And at some point, we'll really dive into the things that the Bible has to say about finances and, and money which is really powerful for our walks before him that we don't put our focus in the wrong place. So that brings us to the end of the passage that we're covering here. As I said, my title, four things every Christian, four teachings of Jesus every Christian should know. You ought to know every single teaching that's out there. So a little misnomer on the title. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and Jesus, especially for the teachings that you gave us. And we should know them so that we can live them and realize they're, they're unique. They're radically different. And uh, we don't want to be those who would live for money or we don't want to be those who have hypocrisy in our lives. And thank you for sharing these truths with us. And I pray for those that are here today who have never made a commitment to you, that you give them the boldness to take the next step. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.